Part Four, Chapter One of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Part Four, Chapter One of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. It was only going away, reversed. The film turned backward. The emotions, too, like some topsy-turvy cinematic sunset, rising now from dim to bright, as a year ago they had faded from bright to deadly dim. As the great boat swung clumsily about in the river, the same crowd, apparently, stood like a swarm of puppets on the same pier, with the same mazy motion of the mass. And through the seething thicket of arms floated a red scarf. Chloe, he sighed, like one surprised that his expectation had been so perfectly realized. And under this serpentine of red were, he knew, yes, he could see them now, Derry and David. Derry and David and Chloe. Nothing had changed. The boat had swung into the river, he had fallen asleep, and now the boat was swinging back. Time was a ghost. It was all some little plotted trickery of fate. They were, before long, shuttling away from the pier, crowded and laughing in a taxi, and deposited at a village restaurant for lunch. One of David's haunts, Derry explained. Kurt sat, his elbows on the table, staring avidly at first one and then another, and expostulating needlessly at intervals in the barrage of questioning. Gee, it's good to see you all again. It was cool and dim, and there were few other customers. David's hand gripped his knee under the table, and David's eyes, David's eyes. I dug this out especially for you, Kurt, remembering last June, Chloe indicated the red scarf. It never seemed like you, that color, he replied, but I'm glad you had it. I don't wear it any more. I leave the flamboyant colors to the kid brother. I suppose you've noticed the necktie. Very da-da, Kurt approved. Derry's getting worldly. I only see him when our mutual friends arrive from Europe. David sat frowning darkly at this badinage, but said nothing. There were silences during the luncheon, when each of the four felt the imposition of the presence of the others. Luncheon over, Chloe twisted her cigarette in the brass tray and rose. Back to the box factory for me. I'll see you again soon. There was the wistful, wishful look in her face as she turned to him that Kurt knew and dreaded. Why, sure, of course. Derry at least knows where to find you, doesn't he? Oh, I suppose he's still got my number somewhere among his addresses. So long, all. And she went out. How's she making out, really? Kurt asked Derry. She never said a word about it in her letters. Pretty well now, I guess, Derry answered. The job at Columbia didn't last long. She's so darned independent, and she's very uppish. Doesn't approve of us, I guess. David was obviously unwilling to talk now. Derry continued. She got this job doing decorating of some kind. Toys, boxes, trays, candlesticks, and things like that. It pays fairly well and keeps her mind occupied, which is a good thing. Very, put in David. Derry laughed. Chloe and David don't hit it off so well. Oh, shut up, Derry. You're always putting your foot in it. And don't forget that you're a working man too, old Bean. This whole forenoon, he explained, turning to Kurt, 
has been a sort of fete champetre in your honor, you see. Lord, yes. Derry looked at his wristwatch, rose and sauntered off with a theatrical nonchalance, waving a see-you-later as he went through the door. Kurt watched all this unfamiliar posturing with an amazed smile. What the devil's got into Derry? he asked. Oh, it's a long story, Kurt. Here, let's go. It's only a couple of blocks to our rooms. I'll help you with the bags, and we'll walk it. The room to which Kurt was led was on a third floor in MacDougall Street. It was almost a replica of David's room in Ann Arbor. Kurt sank back into the black divan, smiling. Come here, he said, holding out his arms. Later, quietness having enveloped them in the dark room like a soft cocoon, holding the two of them there together in the calm, complete happiness that comes so seldom and becomes so cherished and so rare a memory, words, explanations, seemed inconsequential and petty. Kurt thought, and he whispered his thought to David. What if life for both of us should end now, with this moment? Would you care much? I shouldn't care at all, David answered softly. I shouldn't care at all. Oh, Kurt, all this time you've been gone. I've wondered so if it could really be, if I could really care for anyone as lastingly, as awfully, as I seem to be caring for you, wanting you. I couldn't credit it quite, knowing myself so well. But now, now that you're here, I'm sure, sure, sure. It's you and me now, Kurt. It's got to be. David went to the delicatessen for food for supper, which, since Derry would be out, they decided to have in the room. Kurt, languid, happy, unpacked his bag. It's you and me now. It's got to be. Tony's exhortations, Chloe's fears and desires, melted dimly into the past. The moment was too anesthetic for them to prick through into his consciousness. Yet he knew they would have to be answered. It's you and me now. It's got to be. Supper was pleasant, and the evening that followed it, as they lay in the dimly lighted room, talking carefully, slowly, with long intervals of silence, David trying so painstakingly to come to the complete sympathy and understanding that both desired. How very unlike, thought Kurt, those evenings with Tony in St. Paul it was, those evenings full of absurd endless discussions, of absurd endless topics, Tony arguing heatedly for some far-fetched theory, not for the sake of the theory, but solely to bask in his own skill, his mind, hard, brilliant, veering off like a polished ball from the slightest hint of sentiment. Here all was soft and yielding and persuasive and lethargic. David told of the winter with Derry, hesitantly, stumblingly, there was in him now none of the glib superiority Kurt had shrunk from when they first met. All David has to offer you is a spineless idealism. The phrase of Chloe's letter came back to him. Something happened to me, Kurt, David was saying, when you left. None of the old diversions seemed to matter. But how hard it is to get away from those diversions, Kurt. They fly up when you least are looking for them or wanting them. Derry and I took this place. Derry, I thought, would be good for me. I liked him very much. Oh, he hastened. Not as I like you, Kurt. Please believe me, but, well, you know Derry. I didn't very well, I guess. He's so damned sure of things, so solid, so little introspective. 
so little caring for the theories and reasons of things, as long as he has the things. I thought he'd be good for me, but I'm afraid I've only been bad for him. You see, I've... I've... He took Kurt's hand and held it closely. I've never felt so afraid before of telling things. You needn't, said Kurt reassuringly. Maybe I know more about it than you think. David, not noticing, went on. I started this sort of thing when I was such a kid, Kurt, and I'm so sorry for so many things since then. I ran away from school because I was bullied. A man picked me up in a restaurant and was very kind to me. He seemed to offer the things I was wanting, a sort of vie bohemienne, with money and clothes and an idle and beautiful sinful life. The physical thing was so new and so glamorous in Ozzy's establishment. There were always some of the boys about. You don't know them much, do you, Kurt? Not much. They're a sad, strange lot, finding a feverish and hysterical kind of happiness in new associates. Always new boys, new men. You're carried away with it when it's new, and sometimes even when you're older. There's a circle that's always getting wider. You get known and sought after or avoided, but you get known. It's like some great and terribly secret society, with its own life, its own passwords and signs. And once you're in it, it's the very devil to break out. You get older, and you try to look younger. Your taste gets more and more jaded, and you demand more and more perverse diversions. And what happens to you at last, God knows. But the terrible part is, you're known and marked wherever you go. There's a circle here in New York, there's one in Philadelphia, and Boston, and Detroit, and Chicago, and Hollywood, and anywhere at all you go, there's always someone who knows you. Well, he shrugged his shoulders slightly. That's how it was here. I still don't know how it happened. I thought, anchoring myself to you and to Derry, I was safe. But one by one, they'd find me out and come. I was out of it, truly I was. That's what you did for me, Kurt. I saw in you, you see, someone outside the circle, someone strong enough to stay outside and to hold me there, a way of escape. But they came, and Derry was swept off his feet. It was all new to him. He's in it now, and he shouldn't be, for he's not the type, you know he's not. He's only in it for the thrill, not because he can't help himself, or because there's nothing else. He's so damned normal, really and it's worried me like the devil. And there's nothing I can say. He knows too much about me, Kurt, and he can't see how different we are underneath. For a long time they were silent. David, supporting his body on his elbows, played absently with Kurt's fingers. How do you manage, you two? It's been a problem. Derry has had work most of the time. I've done some drafting for one of Ozzy's friends. He made a wry face. And Kurt, believe it or not, I've sold three stories. No, I didn't know you. I didn't know it myself. I've always wanted to, I guess. And when you came along, promising such fine accomplishments, it made me hate myself. The stories were pretty bad, I'm afraid. But I did them to sell, and they sold. I want to write a book. And you've already written some of it, Kurt hazarded. Yes, bits. But it's hard and I've got to do it well, and I hate work. What's the book about, David? It's, it's about us, Kurt, and this. 
David's eyes were darkly serious. So you see it has to be done carefully, for it's got to be, oh, it sounds high-hat, but it's got to be a sort of vindication of our kind of loving, you see, a vindication to the world. Nobody's ever done it, really. Shakespeare's sonnets are, gloriously, but nobody seems to dare admit it. The professors, the fools, get all tangled up in explaining what's as obvious as two plus two. Shakespeare loved the boy actor, and he celebrated his love in the finest, cleanest, highest poetry of his whole career, and did it without shame. And now they manufacture all sorts of shifts and silly dodges to avoid calling Shakespeare an invert. Oh, hell! All I want is to show people we're not monsters any more than Shakespeare was, that's all. Oh, I know the Continentals have a hand in it, Proust and Wittekind. But it's America I want in my book, New York and Philadelphia and Hollywood and St. Louis and New Haven and all the rest. I don't know if I can ever do it. You can do it, David. I know you can. And you'll have to. Yes, he said slowly. Yes, I guess I'll have to. It keeps me awake nights. Again they were silent, until David asked, What about Tony McGarren? Tony? Nothing about him at all, David. More than I told you in the letters. He's a good friend, and that's all. He pulled me out of a frightful case of funk, and he was good company. We worked together on the show I told you about, and that's all. You're sure that's all? All, absolutely all. All right, Kurt. I'm jealous as hell, and you may as well know it now as later. I think I'd knife anybody that wanted you. And you're so damned wantable, Kurt, though you don't know it. I'll worry every time you step out for fear you'll find someone you like better than me. I'll probably be bothering the life out of you if you so much as look at anyone. And if your show does go through, God help me. Why? Why, Kurt, you innocent. Don't you know that there'll be musicians and dancing masters and singers and chorus men and rehearsals galore? I'll be chewing my nails off here at home. Kurt laughed. There's no immediate danger, I guess. At least I daren't count on it. I'll have to see Tony tomorrow and find out what's doing. David considered the prospect glumly, while Kurt watched him, amused. They went to bed early, and Kurt lay awake for a long time in the unfamiliar room, trying to adjust himself to this new order. At the pier that morning, all had seemed unchanged. Now he knew that nothing was quite the same. He had left with a regard for Derry that seemed unshakable, and now, a year later, he lay here with David, regarding Derry's clumsy amours with a detachment that was hard to understand. He had left with an affection for David, so meshed about with David's symbolism and David's ideal, that all his feeling was nebulous and uncertain, a spiritual ecstasy rather than a physical love and now David's head lay close against his throat. And he knew that he loved David as he never could have loved Derry, loved him more deeply because his love was requited and understood. And Chloe, what of Chloe? The relationship there was certainly unchanged, but no. In her that morning he felt a growing hardness, something unyielding and shell-like that the year had built up around her an accretion of bitterness that was a new barrier between them. Was he wrong? Would he, could he be happier with Chloe than he was now with David? 
As if sensing Kurt's wakeful questioning, David stirred in his sleep and laid his arm across Kurt's breast. No, no, no. What was there more than this? And finding David's lips, he kissed him again into wakefulness. End of Part 4, Chapter 1